0: So, welcome back everybody, this week. Thank you for- Welcome back to you. Yeah, thank you for bearing with my absence last week. Um, I hope you enjoyed Alan, he's a, he's a good guy, a good friend of mine, and, and he really loves this Bible study. And he's, he's been coming on and off for years, even before I took over. So, uh, thank you for being kind to him, and hopefully it was a good time. I was uh, up in New York, and I think he told you getting my butt kicked by jiu-jitsu fighters and MMA fighters up there. And it was very good, very needed, good training. Um, on that note, the outreach that I've started, just an update, those of you that follow the blog, so I, on Thursday nights, we will be teaching a martial arts self-defense class for refugee kids here in the city up Project 658. These are people whose families have come here from war-torn places and all over the world, been resettled. Assimilating into our culture and looking to basically just be normal kids and so uh, Disciple Dojo our ministry is going to be doing a weekly class self-defense class and then monthly or or maybe every two months um, Women's self-defense workshops for the moms and for the girls that are part of it So it's really cool and we were able to raise the fundings. Uh, Somebody gave a a major donation to supply all of the needs, all of the equipment, and the mats, and everything that should be coming <laughs> over the next two weeks. So it's really cool, I'm excited. It starts this Thursday, and that's something that if you are a praying person, then be praying for the success of that outreach ministry because there's a lot of really cool potential in this, and a very unique way to serve this part of the world that God has brought to our city, right to our doorsteps. And uh, so it's definitely a great ministry opportunity. Speaking of ministry, let's get back into the book of Leviticus, everyone's favorite book on their top ten list of books that they read before bed every night. You've You've stayed up countless hours flipping through the pages of Leviticus, unable to put it down like a John Grisham novel, I'm sure. So we talked the first week, so this will be our third weekend that I've been reading. We talked in the intro about what Leviticus is, what it isn't. And then last week we looked at the first chapter, which is uh, the first type of offering. So Leviticus begins by telling the Israelites, remember, they've just been given this whole thing called the tabernacle, and this whole institution called the priesthood by God, and it's similar to what other nations have. I mean, other nations had priests and sacrifices, so they're familiar with the general concept, but God wants it to be different in a number of ways. He wants it to be distinct. He wants it to be holy. And that's the term that dominates the book of Leviticus, is holiness. And holiness doesn't mean not dancing, not playing cards, not seeing R-rated movies, not doing whatever holy rollers of the 40s, 50s, and 60s said it meant. What holiness means is being separated and set apart and being different. Being different than the norm. So in the world of Leviticus, in the world of Israel, you had, there are things that are common, normal, every day, and there are things that are holy set apart, sacred, and that's a big difference, and it's not always a moral difference. There are some things that are considered unholy that aren't considered immoral. There are certain foods you can eat, you can't eat, that are considered unholy or or non-sacred, not because there's anything morally wrong with them, but because they negate the difference that God wanted Israel to, uh, to express, to live out. So God would tell Israel to do certain things solely to make them different than the people around them. When he tells them, you know, don't wear garments made of two types of thread, God doesn't sit on his throne and hate cotton polyester blends. He's not like raging against, you know, your blended garment. What he's doing is saying for Israel in this covenant that I've set up with you in this setting where you are going to live among these nations, you're going to be different. And every part of your life is going to have some aspect that's different. that's going to set you apart from these nations around you. So when we get to Leviticus, God is not giving a blueprint for all the countries in the world to follow. God is not giving a blueprint for new covenant believers to follow. We can't just go to Leviticus, read the rules, and try to implement them today. It doesn't work that way, that's not what God intended. We have to read what it was intended for. And primarily it was intended for how Israel was to be Israel in the second millennium BC, in the Holy Land, among the nations that they were surrounded until the time of the new covenant that's the period in which we're in and what we're doing is we're seeing how god wants them to live then because the same god wants us to live in a counterpart way now but not by following the same exact rules because the the game has changed in many ways So the essence of God is still the same. The desires, the principles that can be pulled out from a lot of these practices is still in effect, but the vehicle by which they're observed is different through the lens of the cross. On this side of the cross, where Jesus pulls in all of these loose strands from the Old Testament and embodies all of these types of sacrifices and offerings and and the concept of holiness itself, and then kind of re-envisions them in and around himself you know, he becomes the new tabernacle. He becomes the new temple. He is the final sacrifice. He is the new Moses. He is the new David. He is all the things that the Old Testament was pointing towards. So we're reading it from this side of the mountain where we're, on, we're, we're, we're past what Jesus has done and, and into what he has brought about. But that doesn't mean we just forget everything that comes first. Rather, we go back and we read it now in light of what's happened through Jesus and we see it through new eyes but in order to see it through new eyes we have to see it through old eyes first we have to see what it originally said first then we can see it through the eyes of the gospel so we're at a disadvantage in, as Christians because we don't always we don't have it ingrained in us we don't grow up knowing this stuff by heart we don't grow up knowing Leviticus and being able to name the five types of fa- sacrifices offhand being able to tell what they're for what it consisted of the early followers of Jesus did Jesus himself did all of the writers of the New Testament did. So we're playing catch up in that regard and we're, we're reading through the text to find out first what it said to them, then we can ask what it says to us. So the first type of sacrifice we saw last week, the one that God kicks it off with, was the whole burnt offering. The whole burnt offering, the best of your livestock, the best of your cattle, if you can't afford a bull, the best of your uh, ram or your sheep, if you can't afford that, the best of your goat. If you can't afford that, you can do two birds. So it was—it was this grady, this uh, gradation of sacrifices that you could bring to God. Because the emphasis, the point was, it's not the 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 cost of the gift doesn't determine the worth of the gift. It's the giving all of it. It's it's whatever you can, what you can bring, you bring. The best you can bring, you bring. And if you're rich and been blessed by God with all of the prosperity that he has allowed, then you bring the best of that. If you're poor by God because he has withheld blessings from you in many ways, for many reasons, for whatever reasons, you bring the best you can bring. Everyone's bringing their best. And, and the whole burnt offering, the first one was the only one that is completely consumed on the altar. It's completely given over to God. It's an act of faith. It's not like I'm going to give you a little bit of it and then I'm going to keep the rest for myself, God. It's, it's entirely given to God. So it was, the, it was the core sacrifice, the core offering that defined who Israel was. Right on the heels of that now, God uh, talks about the second offering, which is the grain offering or some of your older translations may say the cereal offering, or some of your really old translations like early 1900s may even call it the meat offering, which is kind of misleading, but it's because the English language has changed and meat used to be the generic term for food. And this is actually not meat, it's specifically grain, uh, which is why that translation was updated. But regardless, grain offering, cereal offering, whatever you want to call it. God says in chapter two, whenever any soul brings a grain offering to the Lord, his offering is to be a fine flower. He's to pour oil on it, put incense on it, and take it to Aaron's sons, the priest. Remember, the offerer does the preparation. Just like with the whole burnt offering. It's not like you just bring it and give it to the priest and he does everything. There is a part you play in preparing this offering. It is your offering, it is your gift. You're giving it to the Lord. So he prepares it, take it to Aaron's sons, the priest. The priest will take a handful of the fine flour and oil together with all the incense and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar. An offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It's a most holy part of the offerings made to the Lord by fire. So the first thing that God's, well, first thing to note here is the, the gradation continues. And then the rabbis in the Talmud, you can read where they talk about this passage and they say, God said it so that you could bring cattle. If you can't afford cattle, you can bring sheep. If you can't afford sheep, goats, if you can't afford goats, birds. If you can't even afford birds, you can just bring grain. You can just bring uh, a, a small amount. So in other words, this is continuing. This, in fact, in uh, Levitical scholars that, that actually focus on the book of Leviticus, a number of them, if you check the commentaries, they, they call this the four-person's offering. This is the offering that, so that, that no one was excluded from God's presence based on what they were able to bring. Nobody, nobody couldn't go to church because they didn't have their Sunday best. In other words, everybody was able to bring. And so in this instance, though, unlike the whole bird offering, this grain offering, only a portion was burned on the altar. So you would make it, you would, you would, if, it was, if it was uncooked flour, so this is the first type, there's kind of like three or four different types, but the first one is that if you want to present the, the grain offering itself, if it's uncooked flour, then they would take it and they would mix some oil in it, uh, olive oil, and they would mix some frankincense in it. And if you remember Christmas, frankincense is one of the gifts that the wise men bring to Jesus. And frankincense was, it was, it was, it was made from the resin of a type of shrub that grows down in like southern Arabia and over towards what's today Somalia, that little horn of Africa. So in that region, and it was incredibly expensive, incredibly expensive. So it was like something that like even a pinch of it was enough because it was it was such an um, extravagant item. And at the time, uh, the, a, a scholar named Jacob Milgram, a Jewish scholar, he notes that in 1960 they calculated like what it would cost in 1960s dollars and frankincense was going would have gone for between 87.50 and 175 dollars a pound in 1960 wow. so today imagine what it would be it's very expensive extravagant stuff and so that's why you know like maybe just a little bit of pinch-up but it was a way of, of saying um, I'm bringing this raw gift and I'm gonna offer it by fire and and the, the frankincense was like a little bit of um, a little something extra, a little something to to give the idea of a pleasing aroma when you burned it. It wouldn't just smell like burnt toast. Like it, there would be a pleasing smell to it uh, in this offering in particular if it was uncooked. So, but it's 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 interesting to note because this is how it's going to go with many of the other sacrifices that only a portion was burned up to the Lord. And The rest was given to the priests to Aaron's sons. This is the priests. This is how they—they they didn't. The priests weren't farmers. Aaron's sons couldn't work in the fields. They couldn't raise their own crops. They didn't have their own land. The Levites never got any land as their inheritance. Their inheritance was the tabernacle and the priesthood. The other tribes got land. So God called the other tribes work the land, raise your flocks, grow your crops. and They called uh, the liturgical priests work the temple, teach the people, oversee the things that I'm calling you to. And the way he provided for both was by giving abundance in the crops and the lands and everything. And then the people would bring in a portion of it would go to the Lord and the rest would go to the priest. That's how they would make their living. The worker deserves the wages. Paul would pick up on this in the New Testament. The, 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 those who are laboring in the temple, that's how God set up for them to be provided for was through the faithfulness of the people who god had blessed in the material uh, economic world now could this get abused absolutely it got abused as early back as uh, as, as as scripture in, in the book of uh, samuel we'll start to see how the priests started to abuse this you know they would take the best portions they would tell the people to bring more they, would, they it, it was abused but that didn't negate the fact that that's what god set it up to be and god judged those priests and their families and, and the people that participated in the abuse. So that was for God's to say, but the principle itself, the core is there. There is the idea of, um, of worshiper and then a particular clergy, if you want to say, or people who are called specifically to labor in the tabernacle versus those who are called to labor in the world. They all go together. It's, it's, it's all part of the, the people of God in covenant with God. So this is how the priests would get their food. This is how they would get their meals. This is how they would eat for themselves and then other offerings, how they would provide for their families as well as the offerers being able to share as well. Because the, the whole bird offering is the only offering that was completely consumed by God. The other offerings were shared. They were eaten, either given to the priests and they were eaten or they were shared as a meal together. But the whole idea of sacrifices in Leviticus in particular is the theme of a meal. It's, it's sharing a meal. The reason you didn't just give an animal to God, but you also brought a grain offering. And, and grain offerings were frequently offered along with the whole bird offering. Like Usually they were offered in tandem. The reason is because that's how you ate. I mean, that's how people ate. When you, eat a, when you ate a meal in the ancient world, you wouldn't just eat meat. You would usually eat meat and there would be some bread or there would be some like some vegetables or some grain or something. And it would be a full meal. Well, in the economy of Leviticus, that's the symbolism that God is presenting is when you offer him an offering you're you're symbolically sharing a meal with your sovereign deity you're sharing a meal with him you're not feeding him like the other gods in the other nations they taught if you don't bring food to the gods then the gods don't get fed and then they get angry it wasn't that it was what god was saying was you're entering into my presence and we're going to sit down and we're going to share a meal together What did Jesus say in Revelation? He's talking to the church at Laodicea, to his people, the church. And he says, behold, I stand at the door knocking. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. It's the idea of wanting to share a meal, a fellowship meal together. It's a very important thing. It's one of the reasons why I love this setting that we have every Tuesday. Because we actually sit down and we share a meal together. Something very sacred about breaking bread together, something very sacred about sharing a meal together, especially in our fragmented and isolated world where we go to work, we scarf down our lunch, we go home, we close the garage door before we get out of the car, then we go inside, then we sit down and turn on the TV, and we never talk to anybody unless we have to. This period, this, this idea of sharing a meal is is crucial to what it means to be a people in community with God. Why is the early church, why was their main thing Communion, communion was a meal. That was a meal. Yes, not just a wafer like we do, where the priest puts it on your tongue or a little cracker that we take and dip it in the water. And, you know, it, it was a meal. They would come together and share like an act. They would, they would eat together, family night supper type thing. And and to Old Testament and New Testament, there's something theological about eating with people. And culturally, it says a lot because culturally, you didn't eat with people that you were better than. In the ancient world, if you were of certain status, you ate with the people of your status. You didn't eat with the low-class people. You didn't eat with the slaves. You didn't eat with the servants. But in the kingdom of God, Old Testament and New Testament, you did eat together. You did share a meal. Jesus did go to the house of tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, Pharisees, everybody, and ate with them. There's something very uh, profound in that concept that I don't want us to miss and it's hinted at or it's alluded to or it's foreshadowed here in the offerings in Leviticus of bringing a grain offering bringing your baked goods to the Lord. In fact the second one verse 4, second section if you bring a grain offering baked in an oven. So the first one was a raw grain offering if you're just bringing the fine flour as, a, as an ingredient. This one is or if you bring an offering baked in an oven it's to consist of fine flour Cakes made without yeast and mixed with oil, or wafers made without yeast and spread with oil. If your grain offering is prepared on a griddle, it's to be made of fine flour mixed with oil and without yeast. Crumble it or break it, literally break bread, pour oil on it, it's a grain offering. If your grain offering is cooked in a pan, it's to be made of fine flour and oil. Bring the grain offering made of these things to the Lord, present it to the priest who shall take it to the altar. He shall take out the memorial portion from the grain offering, like take a piece of it, and burn it on the altar as an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It's the most holy part of the offerings made to the Lord by fire. So the first kind of caveat that he starts to put now, now if it's cooked, if it's cooked, you don't need to put incense on it. It it will be a burning aroma. It will be a pleasing aroma when it's burned. Um, but in particular, when you make it, don't make it with yeast, all right? No yeast in your bread. This harkens back to Passover. This, is, this, would, this would keep in mind the idea of the Passover where they were to go through and root out all the yeast from the house, because in the Passover, they, the yeast, they weren't to add yeast to the bread because they were to be able to make it and be on the go. And yeast takes a while to permeate the dough so that it can rise, so that you can cook it and it's nice and soft and yummy and delicious and all of that stuff. This was specifically saying not that and this. And some, most have said yeast is a symbol in the ancient world in the Israelite mind. Yeast is a symbol of decay, or it's a symbol of death. It's a symbol of this. Yeast is a fungus. I mean, really, that's what it is. Not to get gross, but if you <laughs> a yeast infection, you get an antifungal appointment. Like, <laughs> it's it's a fungus, right? So, it it there was a symbolic idea that yeast is, is a symbol of like. Fungus, or decay, or death, and and also it could infect, it could permeate, because that's what yeast does, right? You take a little bit of yeast, a dough with yeast in it, and you put it into a huge batch of dough with no yeast in it. Wait a while, pretty soon you got a big batch of dough with yeast in it, because yeast is a fungus. It spreads, it permeates, it works its way through. So the idea was that things that are symbolic of death, or or, or, or such corruption, or such decay, or such infection aren't offered on the altar, because symbolically, the, offer, the altar is meant for the things that are that are pure, that are uncontaminated, that are life-giving, and maybe there's something to that. It, it, it's certainly not out of the question. The only caveat is that Jesus himself used yeast in, as both a good thing and a bad thing. He told his disciples, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees, meaning the ability of that, the, the mindset of legalism to creep in and just permeate and just ruin everything. But then he said, what is the kingdom of heaven like? It's like a little bit of yeast that's worked through until it permeates the whole batch of dough. So for Jesus, yeast was a value neutral thing and the biggest component of it, the biggest symbolic thing about it was its ability to permeate. So we can't say for certain that God said no yeast in his offerings because it symbolizes death. Maybe, maybe not. He also doesn't permit wine or or fermented stuff on the altar and possibly for the same reason. Fermenting involves the decay or breaking down of stuff and the turning into something else. So maybe. That's where we don't want to get lost in the forest, uh, because we're examining each individual tree. We want to be able to just see the whole thing and what God's saying is that you're gonna offer if you come to bring me baked goods, literally is what he's talking about, if you bring me a holy donut uh, you know, <laughs> it, 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 this is how you're going to do it. Very plain, very straightforward, and it's going to provide food for the priests as well. Then he adds a caveat in verse 11, which is kind of a subsection. He says, Every grain offering you bring to the Lord must be made without yeast, for you are not to burn any yeast or honey in an offering made to the Lord by fire. And, and honey, we think of bees. But this, this term for honey could also encompass like the honey that's made from fruits. Um, in the ancient world, most of their honey would come from fruits, like like fermented, uh, sugary fruit spread that eventually kind of, it, it's, it's, a, it's a word that's sort of a catch up. So don't just think like Israelites were running around with beekeeper suits on making all this honey, because it was, it was more than just that. But regardless, it was not, it was not to be on the altar. The, the, the food wasn't to be sweetened with the good stuff, so to speak. Um, and and there's, there's confusion because we say, well, why not? You know, the, with the meat offerings, the fat portion, the best part goes to God. So why wouldn't with baked goods, the best portion go to God? And there are different explanations people have given. Some have said because the honey, honey is something that, uh, it's a sweetener that was used in the ancient world, right? They didn't have grain sugar. They used honey. And so that would be, um, and it was also something that humans didn't work to produce. Like, it was made. For them by nature. So there's some that said so that God wants in the grain offering it to be something that you have worked to produce. You know, you've produced the grain, you've produced the olive oil from your, you know, your agriculture. So maybe there's something of that. Other commentators say, no, actually in all of the ancient world outside of Israel, all of the sacrifices or almost all of them, they demanded honey. And they demanded that wine be poured out on the altar. And they de- there was even, I think in Anatolia or, or, or Syria, uh, maybe Babylon, one of the places, there was a spot in the ground where you were to pour your honey because that was going to the God of the underworld as an offering to him. So, you know, there's some that have said it's just a case of Israel being different. And maybe so, maybe so, but god, what, what God's doing is he's setting a very specific, this is how you not do it. And he doesn't always give them the rationale for wine. And so sometimes we can piece it together, but sometimes we can't. Sometimes we can't piece it together why exactly he said one thing, not the other. But you know, if you've been a parent, you tell your kids to do something, sometimes you don't want to tell them why. Sometimes you don't need to tell them why. The whole point is do this because I'm telling you to do it. When they say why, you say because I'm telling you to do it. And there is some of that in how God relates to Israel when it comes to the law. There needs to be a humility on our part to say, Okay, that kind of makes sense, but why exactly? And God says, because I said so. Because I am. I am who I am. This is part of what he was teaching Israel. So then he says, verse 12, you may bring them to the Lord as an offering of firstfruits, but they're not to be offered on the altar as a pleasing aroma. In other words, there will be other offerings where you can bring honey and 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 um, and. You know, you can bring the good stuff in other types of offerings, but not ones that are burnt on the altar. This is a very specific thing that's going on. When you offer something on the altar, it's going to be different than your first fruits offering, where you're just kind of bringing as a celebration your gifts to God and then eating them together as a community. This is different. This is on the altar. This is, this is a, a, an offering gift. He says, verse 13, season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. So now we have a caveat that's added as well. All your offerings, you're going to add salt to it. And for us today, it's, you know, what's the big deal? It's salt brings out the taste. In, in the world of Israel, salt had that effect, certainly. But more than anything, it was a preservative. Salt was how you preserved food before refrigeration. Salt was, was, was symbolic, and this is across the ancient world, salt was symbolic of preservation and permanence. And so the idea of the salt of the covenant of your God, salt and covenant went together. In fact, when you, when you made a covenant with someone, like a friendship covenant or a binding covenant, frequently it would involve exchanging or, or, or eating salt together. And not just like a big hunk of salt, <laughs> in there, but, but sharing of your salt with the other person, so that if you eat of the salt of someone, you're, you're in, in a way joining yourself with that person as an ally, as a friend, as a companion, um, as a covenant agreement. So the salt of the covenant, so what God's saying is that my covenant, my, 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 this, this, that we're doing, all of this, there's going to be an element that's going to involve the permanence of it. It's going to be lasting. It's going to be preserving. It's going to preserve you. You, it's going to be, it's going to, it's going to be what keeps you and me on the same page, and it's going to be you're going to be the salt of the earth. Jesus flat out said that. So, the the symbolism of salt is really important, and so God says it's going to be in all your offerings. And then the last thing, if you bring a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, offer crushed heads of new grain roasted in the fire, put oil and incense on it. It's a grain offering. The priest shall burn the memorial portion of the crushed grain and the oil together with all the incense as an offering made to the Lord by fire. This is the last type of, of, of raw offering you can give. You just wanted to bring the grain, uh, which for first fruits, it would probably, I think, have been barley rather than what we'd know of as wheat or semolina. So it's saying you can bring that as well. All of the ways, in other words, the, the thrust of this chapter is there's all of these different things that you're producing as a people in the land. You're growing crops, you're growing wheat, barley, you know, you're making this stuff. You can bring a portion of it to God. You should bring a portion to God. This is the offering. In fact, the word for the grain offering, the word that's used, is the the Hebrew word mincha, and it means gift. You're bringing a gift to God. It's used in all kinds of contexts throughout Scripture. but, But one of the basic ideas is you're giving a gift And that gift is a mark or a seal of your friendship. And so when you come and you bring your offering, if you're Israel, you're bringing your offering not grudgingly so that God will do good things for you, but you're bringing it in a celebratory manner because of the good things God has done for you and your desire to continue in that relationship. Old Testament believers were never trying to earn their salvation with their offerings. That's a a stereotype that Christians have gotten wrong for many, many centuries. It's not the case. Old Testament believers were every bit as justified by faith as New Testament believers. That part didn't change. What their offerings were, what their sacrifices were, were them working out of their salvation or expressing the gratitude of their salvation. They were saved when they came out of Egypt. Then God said, now this is how you're going to worship me and how you're going to relate to me. So they were never trying to earn their salvation. What they were doing was preserving the relationship between them and the sovereign God who had already saved them. That's the heart of the sacrificial system going on. You have 20 seconds, so we're going to call it early today. Um, next week, we'll look at Leviticus 3. So come back, bring a friend, bring a co-worker, and if anybody wants some seconds, we've still got some here. Thanks a Thank lot.